This is an ABC podcast. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this show contains the name of a person who has died. Minefields. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Today's show is a, a show that I guess lands every year, although not normally at this time. I have to admit I was thoroughly confused by this whole process until it eventually became clear to me. Scott Stevens, my co-host, will explain in just a jiffy. My name is Waleed Ali. Scott, how are you? I'm doing just fine. It's hard to believe that the year is drawing to a close. What a year <laughs> it's been. I think just about all of our plans have been disrupted in one way or another by COVID restrictions. And, of course, the celebration uh, this year of NADOC week was yet another one of those plans that have been pushed to this month instead of July when we normally have it. Um, what we do during NADOC week, I'm not sure about the right terminology here. I feel really uncomfortable about talking in terms of celebrations. I think that's one of the commodifications uh, and one of the almost sort of moral compromises that we've needlessly and I think wrongly made uh, when it comes to something as morally significant and even politically potentially seismic about the kind of marking that ought to take place when we mark NADOC week. Um, let, let me try to sort of sketch something out to you, Willie, and, and you can let me know if you want to sort of take this up in the course of our conversation or not. Here's, here's where I've kind of been thinking about this. So what we're supposed to do in NADOC week is to recognize, to acknowledge, and I think acknowledge in the full philosophical sense. In other words, not sort of acknowledgement in terms of a kind of nod towards something or a half-hearted gesture, but acknowledge in the sense of something that impinges, imposes itself upon the way that we feel and the way that we look at the world. It's a way of acknowledging the fact that the history of this land did not begin with European contact in the 17th or 18th centuries. But, in fact, there is something prior to that. And by prior, I don't just mean historically prior. This might even be the wrong term, and please correct me if you think it is, but something also ontologically and morally prior. There is a depth to this land and the moral and political substructure of it and in it that precedes the 17th and 18th centuries. So that, that I think, is, even though the terminology might be a bit weird, I think that's probably fairly uncontroversial to say. But, uh, and, and so that's why, for instance, the theme this NADOC week, this year, is that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. But I think one of the presumptions that so much Australian politics, especially politics in the last half century, has been predicated on, is this idea that there is something about the Australian political order, derived as it is from Western political traditions, that can gradually accommodate itself to and slowly but surely absorb Aboriginal presence into its own political uh, instruments and institutions, that there is a series of accommodations, if you like that can take place whereby slowly but surely Aboriginal peoples can become fully quote-unquote Australian by becoming fully recognized in Australia's political instruments and institutions. Here's my question, though. So, you know, we've, we've seen this, of course, whether it be uh, the way that Aboriginal peoples were finally counted in uh, 1967 or the recognition of native title 
1992 or the parliamentary apology that recognized the trauma of the stolen generations in 2008 or the ongoing recognition or the calls for, for constitutional recognition. These are all of the ways in which our liberal institutions, I suppose, are supposed to accommodate this ongoing presence in this land. Here's my question, though, Willie, and you might hate this. I'm, I'm fully prepared to leave myself open to that threat. What if liberalism and liberal institutions aren't up to that challenge? What if the accommodation that needs to be made as part of Australia's political institutions and instruments, what if they themselves aren't up to the challenge of accommodating something morally, historically, ontologically prior? What if liberal institutions renowned for their fluidity and flexibility um, I've been thinking lately about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's description of the nature of constitutional law as necessarily embracive, the nature of constitutional law is to keep embracing those things that are normally left out. What if liberal institutions aren't embracive enough such that they can't accommodate themselves to something that is vaster, that is deeper, that is also potentially both historically, philosophically, and politically richer than those liberal institutions and ideas themselves. In other words, what if the thing that's holding back full recognition and reconciliation isn't just one more tick of the political dial or of the political clock, but what if it's much deeper than that? What if it's philosophically more irreconcilable, namely Aboriginal political philosophy and Western political philosophy. How, how does that sound to you as a way of proceeding? It sounds like a fascinating discussion. I'm a bit <laughs> wary that I may not have anything to say that I haven't already said. <laughs> so I might end up becoming quite repetitive on it. Um, I think there's a, there's a level at which what you say, or the question you raise sort of obviously has to be answered by an acknowledgement that liberalism has these limits and can't really transcend them. And the most banal way of understanding that, I think, is that liberalism, by and large, just does not do group identity very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you could argue plausibly that it doesn't do it quite deliberately um, yep. because the whole point of liberalism is to place the emphasis on individual rights, at least as far as our civic lives, lives are concerned. And so, you know, I, I, again, I've said, I'm sure I've said this before to you, but I always felt this was one of the ideological problems that John Howard had in discussing Indigenous affairs, whether it be the apology or it be concepts such as treaty and so on, was that he was so infused by the axioms of liberalism that he almost refused to understand society, at least in this respect, as constituted by anything other than individual Australian citizens. And so mm -hmm. once that happens, it doesn't really make sense to have group-based apologies. It doesn't really make sense to, how do you have a treaty with your own citizens, I think was a phrase yeah. that he, that might even be that's a quote. Right. You can't mm, have a right. treaty with your own citizens. So that ex sort of exposes the limits of liberalism at a fairly obvious level. I suspect the question you're asking is deeper than that, though, because that critique of liberalism goes to any kind of group identity, really. Whereas I think you're trying to argue something that is specific, not just to a group identity, but to um, an alternative philosophy. And that's a more thoroughgoing question that you ask. I, I don't have a direct answer for that just off the top of my head, except to say that I get a bit wary when we 
commence by clumping things under a singular label like this. I, I don't know what Aboriginal political philosophy is or even Aboriginal philosophy is. Does such a thing exist? Is it, is it a coherent thing? Does that sort of gloss over quite a lot of diversity amongst these sort of philosophical traditions that you're talking about? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the meaning of philosophy is in this sentence exactly. What what do you mean by it? So I suppose these are all questions I have to throw back at you before I can give you my sense of where the answer lies. What a wonderful, wonderful way of proceeding. Look, I, I think in many ways I, I want to say, well, that's exactly why we're having this conversation to answer precisely those questions. Let me just say this, though, Waleed. I have, I've kind of felt, I've had Ludwig Wittgenstein on my brain a lot lately, which mm. just says that there's nothing particularly good about what's going on in my brain at the moment. Well, uh, you when, don't like Wittgenstein. I love Wittgenstein, but he drives me crazy. Right. But, but he makes, in his philosophical investigations, he makes this lovely distinction that has stuck with me a lot over the years, which is the difference between reading something with feeling and reading something as a way of skimming a text for information. Yeah. One is done properly and fully and with feeling. The other simply doesn't go deep enough and so can hardly be classed in the same group as reading proper. I'm kind of feeling the same way about acknowledgement or recognition. For recognition to mean what I think it ought to mean to be morally credible, it has to acknowledge that not just are there first peoples here, but that the adjective first there suggests both historical and moral primacy. It also suggests that for their presence here to be acknowledged in an ongoing way, it's not just presence, but the fact that an entire life world and something that I think can be called a philosophy in the same way that Plato's life world can be referred to as a philosophy. Plato's conception of the city can be referred to as a philosophy. Um, So to give acknowledgement means that there is a full life world that goes with that acknowledgement. There's a way of speaking and a way of thinking about the relationship between human nature and nature more generally that needs to go along with that. So simply to acknowledge without acknowledging the entire life world that goes along with it, saying that this acknowledgement can simply take take place as one of the functions of liberalism itself, I think that's like skimming a text for information rather than reading with feeling. Sure. So I think that's correct. Like, I think the way you've described that, I'm prepared to sign up to that, at least in Greyled. Um, (laughs) But... I've never heard you use that phrase before. You mean by pencil. Yes. You're willing to sign it by pencil. I just made it up Isn't that lovely? Is Greyled something you only say in grade two and then you... Yeah, I think so. I've never heard it before, but I love it. I'm going to use it HB or something. Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'm prepared to sign up to that tentatively. I'm just not sure... And maybe this is what the rest of this show does, right? Is it explains or answers my question here. I'm just not sure where that ultimately leads you. Because it feels like the logical extension of that kind of uh, observation and that kind of argumentation is a place whereby philosophical worldviews can never, under any circumstances, be supplanted by anything else. And if you hold that position, then your objection is basically to human history. Hmm. That there's a kind of fundamental incommensurability in the coming together of different groups. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I would, Which is not what I'm suggesting at all. Right. And if it were, I would invite you to point to any place on the earth where that hasn't happened, like where, mm. where, where that, that rule would not have been violated. I feel like it would have yeah. been violated yeah. everywhere, right? So, yeah, that's right. So what do we mean by that? 
You know, I think mm-hmm. I, I think your observations are important. I suppose what I'm asking is the so what question. Yeah. So if we assume that you're right, that liberalism and our political arrangements cannot accommodate Indigenous philosophy, whatever that is, well, then what? Are you calling for the capitulation of liberalism? Well, if if wishing made it so, what I probably would say is the way that we need to proceed as a nation is to hold whatever it means, whatever we mean when we say Australian identity – in quotation marks, until that identity is more fully defined by processes that really can subscribe to the notion of justice. Right, but if you want to walk down that road, don't you then have to ask the question that runs in the opposite direction, which is precisely what accommodations is Indigenous philosophy capable of making? Mm, I think so. All right, okay. I feel like asking it that way makes it a lot less comfortable. Yeah. Well, that's Good. as far as we've gotten. <laughs> so, <laughs> Let's go. Shall we bring in some guests to yes, rescue us? Yes, please. This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN. You might be doing that right now. But you can catch us anytime in the ABC Listen app if you like. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you do such things. Um, the podcast has extra content because we tend to find that we just have more to say after they kick us off the radio. That'll happen today too, I have no doubt. Partly because double-barreled guest time, Scott. This is Double-barreled guest. We only reserve this for either discussions where we have no idea what we want to say uh, or when they're big enough that simply one guest can never do it justice. And I think that's probably <laughs> where we are here. Uh, it is a great honour and a great privilege to have both of our guests with us. Uh, Mary Graham is a compamary person from the Gold Coast. She's adjunct associate professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Mary, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield. Mm, thank, you. thank you. And also with us is Morgan Brigg. Morgan is associate professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Morgan, welcome to The Minefield. Thanks for having us on. So uh, I'm not going to ask a question. You've heard the way that Waleed and I have tried to sort of sketch or frame the discussion. And I really do think that this is a discussion about whether it is possible, because I think it's morally, to my mind, it's morally unarguable Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't take political liberalism as the grounds and then see what we can bring to it, Mm -hmm. see what, what can be accommodated by it. To my mind, if we take the moral, the historical, the ethical primacy of First Nations in this land seriously, I think we actually have to begin somewhere else. We have Mm -hmm. to begin with another concept of our common political life. So you've heard what we've said. Where did the two of you want to take this conversation? Mary, I might Mm -hmm. start with you. Um, Well, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this this place, uh, Brisbane, Turbal and Yagara peoples, so um, they and their ancestors. Um, so I probably would start with what Walid was talking about philosophy, just to get that out of the way actually mm. first, <laughs> is that that's quite right. Aboriginal people don't have a philosophy in the Western understanding of philosophical um, exploration, um, looking for the meaning of things like the good, you know, moral, ethics, um, the beautiful, aesthetics and so on and so um, The closest thing to like a philosophy is I use the word Weltanschauung, the German word meaning a worldview. That's what I would say that we have, how we see the whole of existence and so on. Uh, partly because it's so old, uh, you know, the society is of such great age, it's 
been in this country, in this continent for such a long time. They've worked a whole lot of things out. So it's a worldview, a view of life and uh, and what, what social and political ordering is about and what meaning is and the relationship with land and relationality and so on and so on. The other thing is one of the first things I would comment on or not question so much but comment on about liberalism is seems to me the first thing I would wonder about taking into account our ideas about this, Aboriginal ideas about this uh, and experience is that does it come out of a moral world? Is it housed in a moral world, liberalism? What kind of a world does it come out of? Mm. You know, Because that's the first thing and it's, it relates to when older Aboriginal people talk about that it seem it appears to them that white people, you know, newcomers don't have a dreaming, and a, and a dreaming means it means a whole lot of things to a whole lot of different groups. But essentially, it means the kind of world that you live in and that you're at the moment in, and that is a moral world, meaning that the land that you're walking on, the place, the space, is um, has been sacralised. So we are all part of this. This system, so it's a whole system of, of being in this country. So, so does liberal does liberalism have a? It seems to me like it's sort of a, like a, a Janus faced kind of uh, thing. You know what I mean? It, it it presents one side and it presents another. You know. And, well, the, and so the and, fact and, that liberalism, and everybody like indigenous people are dragged into it. The know? fact that liberalism doesn't have a place, mm. it doesn't have a world. It has land that it uses. Mm. And it has private property. Mm. But also the fact that liberalism doesn't have time apart from progress. Mm. In other words, liberalism doesn't have a past. It only has a future that it maybe describes oh. as being more just. I don't know Morgan that's right, dis- Scott. Well. No? No, I don't. Please. Well, on. I just think that liberalism proceeds on a series of assumptions that may not necessarily be very well-founded assumptions, but that time and place provides certain moral consensus upon which society then proceeds and can you can maximise individual liberty within that context. And so moral consensus can change over time. That's right. But it doesn't... So liberal, the way I describe it is liberalism is itself amoral. But if I were to answer Mary's question, does it have or come from a moral world? I would say, yes, it does. It's just that in the process of becoming the dominant ideology, it ends up making that world amoral over time, right? But I feel like it is rooted in a certain moral understanding of the world and it presumes a certain moral undergirding and a cultural undergirding that's there. I don't think it's this free-floating abstract thing that has no connection to culture or or morality, even if in the end that's what it produces. Can I come in on that, Walid? I think liberalism constructs a moral world and, in, in a sense, produces itself as a moral world, but it is, in fact, unmoored from place. It operates through mm. the word, mm, yes. through reason and abstract knowledge. And when Aboriginal people look at that, they see the behaviours that colonisers brought to this place and they see it as wild mm. and amoral and operating mm. to extract resource and expropriate land. I think we're talking mm. about capitalism there. 
and perhaps neoliberalism. But I don't know that we're necessarily... Uh, no. Well, liberalism yeah, I, is the undergirding yeah. ideology that drives the political order in this continent. It facilitates capitalism. Sure, capitalism might mm. be the front line of that, but liberalism is the political philosophy that enables it. Yeah, sort of. So, OK, maybe we need to come up with some mm. distinctions then. Because cause my mm. feeling is that liberalism takes a particular turn after the mm. Second World War, which is when you enter a neoliberal phase and you via Hayek and so on. If you read Mill, would, is that the world that Mill describes? Well, well I, I mean, I, th- I think we need to acknowledge that Mill is actually a dissident voice, to be perfectly frank, within the history of liberalism. But if we see liberalism as, for instance, not really having a place and therefore having an internal logic that necessitates expansion... I mean, that, I think... So it's universalist that, is what you That's simply, it is universalist, but it's universalist in the territorialist sense. It needs to mm. expand because it needs land for resource. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Marion Morgan, mm. but I think that is a, that's an utterly different conception mm. of place and of territory and of country. Yes. But um, I, I look at something like liberalism and I'm trying to see it in the context of, and maybe you could say this is modern modern times in relation to, say, international law, something like this. But how come that uh, big moral questions about people who, one lot of people really going to another country, invading and bombing, a long time ago, you know, old colonial stuff, um, but right now it's still happening. Liberal countries do this. They go, their armies and military go to other countries, bombing, taking their resources, their wealth, and so on and so on. And where does, I wonder, where does international law come into it, let alone liberalism and things like that? To me, it, it always seems very contradictory and very strange to a lot of Indigenous people around the world, but also um, Aboriginal people here, it, like the Janus-faced thing, mm. do you know? I, don't, I can't understand that. You see, where does that all come from? Yeah. How does it all fit together? And that's what blackfellas look at. How does everything fit together? Us with land, us with each other, um, people with people who they don't know, and how do you... How do you behave in the world? Yeah. yeah. That kind of stuff. Sorry, Morgan? Yeah, well, this is the, the point about the contradictions of liberalism. To move on from what mm. Waleed was saying, um, the Australian political philosopher Barry Hindus points out that liberty, mm. liberty and domination are joined in liberal thought, like two sides of a single coin. You know, you might see liberty and freedom on one face, but domination is faced is on the other face. Now, of course, that's a, a simplistic representation in some ways, and liberalism is shot through with all sorts of fascinating ways to face a difference. One of the things it mm. does when it faces difference, as you were saying in your introduction, Scott, is that it accommodates difference, but it accommodates difference on its own terms. It invites people in to participate mm. on its own terms. And this is what mm. has happened uh, through the types of accommodations that you've been talking about in the last 50 years or so, Scott. Can anyone name mm. me a political philosophy that doesn't? That doesn't operate on its own terms? Yeah. Well, I mean, let's go to the question that you raised earlier on as part of your introduction, uh, Wally, too, about Aboriginal political philosophy. What is this? Is this a thing? And so on. I would say that is an, an emergent phenomenon, and it's emergent because, as Mary has described at various points, Aboriginal people haven't had to describe themselves to others, haven't had to articulate their political philosophy. 
so it's a bit hard to say anything definitive about that at that point. There's an emerging conversation developing what Aboriginal political thought or political philosophy is. But in terms of the practice of mm. Aboriginal people, mm. Aboriginal peoples have consistently put the hand out to Europeans to build some sort of accommodation in this in this place. And that hand has been uh, smacked away by colonisers and by liberalism, which says, operate on our terms. We have political order sorted um, and our conception will hold and will exercise force if need be to ensure that that's sustained. And one of the ways that force is sustained, very striking in this, in this continent, is by the incredible incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Sure. I, look, I, no, I, th I think that's a very good observation. I guess the thing is, in order to test it, you would have to change the power dynamic and see what happened, right? Mm. So I guess that's the thing about accommodation, you, you accommodate when you don't need to accommodate. Otherwise, it's not accommodation, it's coercion. <laughs> it's a different sort of a thing. Anyway, you've given us such rich pickings for the podcast, so I'm looking forward to getting involved with that in just a moment. So Mary uh, and Morgan, thank you very much. Hang on, though. You've got a lot more to say, I know, and we look forward to hearing uh, hearing it from you. That's Mary Graham, a Compo Marie person from the Gold Coast and an adjunct associate professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Morgan Brigg is associate professor in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. Also, our guests for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done with the radio show. The podcast is about to start now and we'll see you on the radio next week. Mary, I know you're dying to say something. Just just before you do, there's one issue that I, I think it'd be interesting for us to try to address in the course of this sort of additional part of the conversation. Um, it does strike me, and I alluded to this earlier, it does strike me that, Mary, when you refer to maybe not Aboriginal philosophy, but say an Aboriginal Weltanschauung, mm -hmm. a, a way of looking at the world and mm -hmm. of the notions of being in the world that are appropriate mm. to the world, if you mm, like, a mm, kind of mm. an internal or an inherent mm. ethics, maybe something that might even be referred to in other traditions as, say, a natural philosophy, mm, mm, even. Mm, uh, mm. The way that one acts in the world emerges from the way that one is in, in the world. In the world yes. That strikes me as being far closer to, say, Plato's philosophy or Aristotle's mm. philosophy than mm. anything in the what we refer to as the Western liberal mm. tradition. Now, maybe this might mm. have something to do with sort of respective ancientnesses, yes. uh, mm. to sort of butcher the term completely. But I, I guess I'm, I'm curious that one of the things that all four of us, I think, are kind of reaching around is for an accurate description of what we might mean by justice. And if you go back mm. to Plato, justice is predicated on consent mm. because consent is predicated on the idea of an equality between the parties addressing one another. Mm. As soon as there is inequality in the address, there is a power imbalance on mm. one side, mm. which means the consent of the weaker party never needs to be really honored the way mm. that it ought to be. So mm. for there to be justice, there needs to be consent. And for there to be consent, there needs to be an equality between the parties. Mm. If what the two of you, if I'm to take seriously what both you and Morgan, Mary, have been talking about, one of the fundamental absences in Australian political life is an absence of justice because there's mm. been an absence in a proper conception of consent because there's been no regard to the equality of the partners mm. in conversation. Mm. You 
come to settlers. Mm. We don't mm. come to you. Mm. Yeah, and right. and, and, and it, it strikes me that mm. for something like that conception of justice to be honored, there needs to be a reconception of the political institutions themselves. And something mm. like a call for First Nations voice mm. in Parliament is a first kind of step towards something that might actually resemble well, political justice because of equality mm. of communication. Do either of you want to say anything about, about I, I guess, the concept mm. of justice uh, as it kind of pertains to this? Uh, I don't know. It's such a huge thing. Do you look at it in a modern, well, you know, what happens today, you know, um, deaths in custody. Uh, but it, I think it goes much deeper than that. I think justice is uh, sort of aligned with a sense of security, though, too. Um, and for that... For Aboriginal people everywhere, it's the system that emerged here over thousands of years. And that is, just to say it really briefly, um, it's a flat, more or less a flat structure, not hierarchical. So there are no class or caste systems, nothing mm. like that. Um, the only main distinctions between old and young and male and female, there are other distinctions too and so on. But so there's no dominating force. There was never any dominating tribal, although I don't like the word tribal, um, clan forces there bringing. So in other words, no state emerged here. It's not a civilizational state like other ancient civilizations. It's a civilizational culture, what I call a culture. So relationalism, relationalist uh, connection with land uh, builds a custodial ethic, the idea of uh, a sacralized ecological stewardship, if you like, poetic and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and the relationalism takes care of the survivalist impulse or the su real survivalism, you know, trying to get out of shark-infested waters and so on, or you've lost your job after 30 years or something like that, and whatever is going on now in politics and so on, you know. Um, so they work, they work together. So they built, Aboriginal people built, uh, developed uh, an actual social, political, ordered system. And an ordered system is a key thing too. You, it won't be an ordered system without what you call justice, without a system where everybody's involved, where there is a, a general principle of something like a law of obligation, obligation, reciprocity, all of that. Now, I know how anthropologists look at it because they always look at it generally. I I'm, could be quite wrong here, but I mean, some modern anthropologists don't talk like this, but that they see it in a survivalist way, where, where, where tribal people, you know, primitive, blah, 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 were, and so we're always trying to um, survive and so on. But relationalist, relationalism is the thing. Um, for example, just to jump right across something, what I'm talking about, I, I see the idea of empire, the uh, unipolarity, you know, uh, mm. an empire dominating um, as as inefficient. Not only you may say and argue about it being uh, moral or immoral, mm. uh, amoral, but above all, it's inefficient because it's not looking after everybody and it's not looking after the land. You have to have some kind of um, not ethics coming out of the air. You know, uh, you have to have you have to actually practice it. Ethics is a doing thing. So you look after land, and in a roundabout way, you're learning ethics. Actually, mm. you know, and an elder, um, older, he died now. Um, Bill Niji, he wrote a book about the story of feeling. Feeling plays a huge part in that. Feeling, the land makes us human. Feeling actually makes us human too, and keeps us human, mm. and so on. So um, all of this sort of development give rise to things like unbelievable things, like you, caught, you, you, had, you had conflict and every different term that describes conflict, 
but you couldn't invade other people's countries. It was an unknown thing. It was inconceivable to do that. It was against the law, basically, law of obligation. Hmm. So, and, the, and when I say invasion, I mean the three-step invasion, invade, conquest, subjugate, unheard of. You, you have to get on with each other. And a, the big thing that brings people together is this management of resources, you know, not like the Murray Darling <laughs> at now where everybody's, it's a piece of the pie, do you know what I mean? But you've got to have some kind of ethical basis for looking after things and then people get on, you know. When somebody goes around invading other people's countries, you know, they get pissed off. <laughs> and and there is, there is, as these modern terms, blowback, chickens coming home to roost, and it might be centuries and centuries and so on. So they always look for not a kind of um, a, a rewarding, spiritually rewarding thing, behaving properly. You'll get your reward in heaven later because there isn't any heaven in this old system. No heaven, no hell, no God, no one God or mm. God or anything like that. You have to do it right here on the ground, you know. Mm. So it's a completely different Weltanschauung. Mm. Yeah, so I'll leave it there. Morgan, do you want to pick us up? Well, just to say that uh, what Mary describes there is a very capacious way of thinking about justice. Now, that's not to say there can't be accommodations between liberalism and uh, its ways of uh, of progressing and thinking about these things. But what we've to pick up some of our earlier conversation, what we've seen is a one-way accommodation. And um, to go back to the introduction to the overall episode, there is a pos- there's certainly possibility for a mutual a mutual accommodation here. And one, just to perhaps collect the conversation somewhere else, one of the things that liberalism values so strongly, of course, is individual freedom or individual liberty. Now, there's a misunderstanding about mm-hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that they are group-oriented or collectivist. And this is this mm-hmm. unfortunate bi- binary between mm-hmm. individualism and collectivism, which just doesn't play out for Aboriginal people. Most Aboriginal people have an incredibly strong sense of autonomy, a stronger mm-hmm. sense of autonomy than you tend to find in, in Western liberalism. So there's a, you know, there are touch points. There are all sorts of possibilities for conversation and exchange about the valuing of autonomy and individualism and then uh, how, you could, we, how we could build potentially a particular, a, a new type of political order on this continent that draws from Western liberalism and Aboriginal political philosophy or Weltanschung or however you want to, to frame it. Hmm. Mm. Can I put something mm. to you, Walid? Sure. Um, it is striking, though, and let, let me just sort of translate this into sort of terms that I'm, I guess, a little bit more familiar with. I mean, both Plato and Aristotle also had strong senses of autonomy, of personal discipline, and of even what's sometimes called perfectionism, uh, the path of one's life towards betterment. But what undergirt both of those thinkers' concept of individuality or autonomy is the idea of internal restraint, that certain things don't have to be imposed from the outside mm. because those restraints already exist internally as part of one's being in the world and as part of the process of perfectionism itself. I mean, well, this is something we've often talked about, about our reliance on, say, uh, human rights and on international law and on, say, codes of conduct precisely because of the absence of the kind of internal restraint that 
I, I would say John Stuart Mill is probably just about the last thinker within the liberal tradition that really mm-hmm. held on to anything like that. Is that, do you think, Waleed, that's a possible point of overlap or a sort of exploration that takes us someplace genuinely new? Possibly. I, I, I was going to try to resist this, but you just did it. I think we're glossing over Mill far too quickly here. Yeah. He's not just a liberal thinker, he's canonical. So if we're going to try to understand what liberalism is imagining, then I think you begin with him. You don't just sort of have him as one of the people along the road as kind of an exception to a broad liberal trend. So I want to make that observation because I think that inflects what we've said previously. I just don't agree. I, I'm sorry, Willie. I, I just don't agree. I mean, Hobbes is canonical. Locke is canonical. Mill is a dissident a dissident voice within the liberal tradition. And the only way that we can say that he's canonical in the sense that Hobbes and Locke are is by flattening out Mill to take precisely those aspects of his thinking that really did run, in fact, counter with what has become, say, canonically or classically liberal. All right. Let's do another episode on Mill. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just disagree. I, I just think if you're teaching liberalism, you hand someone a copy of On Liberty. And yes, that doesn't mean you ignore Locke and Hobbes. Mm. But anyway, um, yeah, so this, I, I think you're right that one of the problems with contemporary Western political imagination, and liberalism obviously has to be complicit in this regard because it's the driving force of so much mm. Western political imagination, is that it doesn't place any trust in or even really care much about internal limitations. So that is to say, the moral formation of people is not so much its concern, which I suppose is what happens when you want to emphasise liberty, right? Um, It doesn't want to guarantee liberty by virtue of people's virtue. It wants to guarantee liberty by virtue of restraint on external factors such as, and primarily, the state. So once you approach things in that way, then I suppose you're inevitably going to come to this sort of point, like this this conception of human beings and their relationship to power and to each other and to difference. So yes, if liberalism, or we could even just say if contemporary politics Hmm. can find a way to re-engage with that aspect of human beings, then there might be room for accommodation. I guess my problem is I'm not so sure that's purely a function of liberalism so much as it is an inevitable consequence of the nation state. Mm. Because the nation state posits a much more interventionist and pervasive presence in the life of the citizen than even did the empire, really. Um, mm-hmm. You know, empires had this, I mean, obviously, how can you generalise about empires? But when I think about mm. medieval empires, particularly if I think about mm. something like the Ottoman Empire, I mean, there was kind of this radical separation between the legislature and the judiciary, if you like, and the executive. Mm. They, they, That's right. The empires were so big and so vast that they actually couldn't be bothered getting involved in the lives of their subjects at the level of minutiae that a nation state does. Because that's not, it was more an administrative thing. Pay us money, we more or less stay out of your life. If you give us trouble, we crush you. That's that's the arrangement. The the pluralism Mm. in and of empire was far more radical than in liberal democracies. Yes, but I don't know if it's just about liberal democracy. I think it's about the nation state. Mm, mm. Right. So I think a more interesting question might be is the nation state compatible with the claims of indigenous philosophy that you're trying to articulate here? I think that might be a more interesting question. Question in the end. 
I feel like we're pinning I, a lot on liberalism yeah. specifically. Um, well, maybe it has to be, you know. <laughs> but um, I was just thinking, um, the state, uh, and I don't know if this is just a throw, a cliche, it has become a cliche, but the state, I've been told, only has interests. It doesn't have ethics. It doesn't have ethics at all. People have ethics, you know, groups or mm. individuals or otherwise. Um, so I'm taking other people's ideas about uh, the Chinese. They talk about themselves as being having a civilizational state, you know. And when I look at it, I'm trying to look at it in this broad thing around the world. It seems to me like no matter what the culture is, um, ancient ones and modern ones, they're civilizational states. And what Aboriginal people have really developed over this long period without interruption, this is the very important thing, is a civilizational culture. You know, the idea of the uh, law of obligation and things like that. But we can see it. We can see that it is actually existing there and it is a connection with the state. Things like, for example, the idea, the English idea of the National Health Service. In Aboriginal terms, that's, that's a law of obligation being enacted. There are no, there are no insiders and outsiders. Everybody looks, gets looked after. Um, it's free. It's a, a, a right, not a privilege, you know, all that sort of thing. I was trying to explain this to young American students that I've had. Uh, no, it's not communism. National Health Service is not. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, it is an ethical thing. Mm. It is moral, you know. So, so the state can do it when it wants, you know what I mean? They can have these arrangements. Uh, ethical arrangements should have more of it um, in a sense if the civilizational state had more to do with the civilizational culture that is literally how how people are treated mm. uh, great groups of people and towns and cities whatever you know however you look at it yeah. economics especially economics you know Morgan we're running very quickly out of time oh, do you, do you want to have the last word here just to pick up on what Walid was saying about the nation state getting in the way of accommodation more so than liberalism that may be that may be so I'm partly persuaded by that but I still think we've got a question about what kind of a nation state do we want to build and grow and develop in this place and then I think if we're willing to ask ourselves those questions as a polity then we can enter into an engagement and build this more civilizational state that that Mary is referring to mm. Wow. All right, we mm. need a sequel, Scott, so I guess we we'll do, do that mm. sometime soon. Mm. Um, Mary, Morgan, thank you very much for being, I think, deeply enriched by your presence today. So thank you. Thank, thank you. Mary and Morgan have also written a, a quite an extraordinary series, I should have mentioned before, Waleed, uh, on Aboriginal political philosophy and concepts on ABC Religion and Ethics. If you go to the Minefield site for this particular episode, we've got the full list of those articles. Uh, I've been deeply enriched by reading them. It's one of the reasons they're on the show today. I'm sure you will too. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.